Good morning. What a joy to be with you. And I want to welcome those who are visiting us. Be welcome. It's an honor to have you here. I want to invite you to open your Bibles in First Peter. Now, first, let's go to Exodus. Exodus 19. And then we go back to First Peter as we are opening our Bibles to Exodus. That's the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 19. And as we are opening there, I just want to thank this church for all the service. We come here, you see all the chairs set up and everything all set, everything ready. And it's not magic, it's service. People are here early in the morning, getting the trailer, getting the things ready. People are here early in the morning praying for the service. So I just want to thank you for your faithfulness, your service, every single one of you. Exodus 19, and I want to invite you to stand up if you can. We read this passage last Lord's Day. Starting verse 4, as God is establishing His covenant with Israel, the old covenant with the nation of Israel, it says, Exodus 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now let's go to First Peter. First Peter chapter 2, starting verse 4. First Peter chapter 2. Now it's towards the end of the Bible. As you come to Him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands, Behold, I'm laying Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may be seated. As we continue our series series of sermons on the doctrine of the church, today I would like to continue laying the, I think, a strong foundation for the doctrine of the church. And I want to talk about the identity and value of the church this morning. I think before talking about the mission of the church, what the church should be doing, that's what everybody wants to talk about. And I think that's why everyone is an expert What the church should be doing. Everybody knows what the church should be doing. But the truth is, we can only understand 
the mission of the church once we understand the identity of the church. And today I want to talk about that, the identity of the church, the value of the church. Now let me just start by saying that the value, the worth of an object increases in direct proportion to the significance of the person to whom the object belongs. Listen to this. The dignity and worth of an object is deeply connected to the one to whom the object belongs. Let me give you an example of that. Let's think about drawings of birds. If I get a piece of paper and start drawing birds, how much would you give for those drawings? How much would you pay for those drawings? You'd not pay anything for those things. You'd pay me to keep those drawings to myself. But now the book, The Birds of America, created by James Audubon, very famous. His book of drawings of birds was sold for $10 million. So the value of an object increases in direct proportion to the significance of the person to whom the object belongs. How about an old baseball ball? If I bring you an old baseball ball, and say, how much would you give me for this old baseball? Say nothing. Mark McGuire's, his 70th home run ball, was sold for $3 million. So the value of an object increased in direct proportion to the significance of the person to whom the object belongs. How about hair? Look, I know you love hair. <laughs> how much would you give if I bring you... <laughs> Dan's hair here. <laughs> you see... <laughs> if I bring hair and say, hey, how much you'd give for this hair here? I'd say, that's gross. Get out of here with this hair. You see, Elvis Presley's tresses, his hair, were sold for $115,000 in 2002. How about an old dress? An old woman's dress? Marilyn Morrow's, Morrow's happy birthday, Mr. President's dress was sold for one million. $267,000. About drawings, once again, Pablo Picasso's nude green leaves and bust, it's, honestly, if you saw that painting, it's not that... Honestly, it's not that beautiful. Just a painting created in the span of a single day was sold for $106 million. Why? Because of the owner. Who painted that object? To whom it belongs? My sermon ma manuscripts? It's worth nothing. Go get Spurgeon's or J.C. Ryle's sermon's manuscript. Why? To whom it belongs. Think about an old quill pen. I'm not going to do anything with that old quill pen. But once you know that belong to Shakespeare, then you have a lot of value there. An old Brazilian soccer jersey. But once you know it belonged to Pelé... Or an old Chicago Bulls. And you know they belong to Michael Jordan. They see, that's very important. The value of an object increases in direct proportion to the significance of the person to whom the object belongs. And the same principle is applied to the church. The value and worth of the church is directly connected to the value of the owner of the church. And the church bears the distinctive dignity of belonging to the most beautiful, most glorious, most majestic, most praiseworthy triune God. Well, how much is the church worth? 
The value and dignity of the church is connected to Jesus Christ. We can never separate the church from Jesus Christ. The church is His. I will build my church. The church is His. It belongs to Him. You see, in the end of the day, brothers and sisters, it's not about the Baptist church, the Presbyterian church, the Anglican church, the Reformed church. It's the Lord's church. It's Jesus' church. It's His. It belongs to Him. We sang two Sundays ago, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water and by the Word. From heaven He came, He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her and for her life He died. Therefore, we can say that indifference, lack of zeal, apathy towards the church is indifference and apathy towards the builder, owner, and head of the church, the triune God. And I know people can give the most variety types of excuses for their indifference or lack of zeal towards the church. You hear bad experience with unloving church members, legalism from church leaders, some sort of abuse, too much demand from the old church, disappointment by someone in the church, even personality. Aspects. I'm too shy, I'm too antisocial, I cannot find a church that matches all that I'm looking for. Though all these experiences can be real, in the end of the day, in the end of the day, the lack of zeal, the apathy towards the church is not because of your experiences, it's because of how you see the owner and head of the church, Jesus Christ. And you look around us in America, how many people profess to be Christians, but they have no passion, no zeal for the church of Jesus Christ. They don't care about being members in a local church. They don't care about the church. And in the end of the day, that's apathy towards Jesus Christ. Because the value of something is connected directly to the owner of the object. So to better grasp the worth and value of the church... So that we may grow in our appreciation, in our uh, enthusiasm towards the church, you're going to be looking at First Peter. Today we arrive at these verses and you're going to be walking through these verses. And, and the, the, you guys know I, I do expository preaching book by book, chapter by chapter. And one of the dangers of doing topical preaching is getting verses out of context. So I want to be very careful throughout these next sermons as we are doing a topical series is to make sure that we grasp the context of the passage. And as we come to First Peter, and most of you know by reading First Peter that he's writing to churches in Asia Minor. And he's, you can see in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. That's in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And the churches there, the Christians in that area, they were suffering violent persecution. So when you read First Peter, you see how often Peter talks about their sufferings and their trials. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, by the fiery trial that you're experiencing. So they're going through persecution. So Peter writes this letter to help his readers to see, first of all, their identity in Jesus Christ, to, to, to behold Jesus the one who suffered for His people. And once they see their identity in Jesus, they will understand how precious they are in God's sight and that the sufferings are part of this life as 
exiles on the earth. Uh, Frank Thielman, he writes, Peter's audience may suffer rejection from the world around them, but God has freely chosen to consider them His special people. So that's what Peter is doing in his letter. So as you come to verse 9, let's go to verse 9. You can see in your Bibles, and I hope you have your Bibles open there, especially now to get the context. You see that it starts here with, but you, but you. And that's a word of contrast. And every time you see the word but, therefore, so, that implies that there is a context. And you need to see what the author is writing before that. And as you see, you can just look at the verses before. You see that Peter is talking about two groups of people. The contrast is between two groups of people. One is those who reject Jesus Christ and they stumble as they were destined to do it. And then the second group is those who are destined to believe in Jesus and are part of God's people. Look at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone. So two groups of people, those who believe, those who do not believe. That's how humanity is divided. And then look how he says, and who caused this, this division in humanity? Look at that. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There are two types of people, those who believe in Jesus and are connected to Him by faith and are growing to this beautiful temple, and there are those who reject Jesus and are being put to shame, are being condemned. So the first thing we should notice as we are talking about the church is that the head of the church is divisive. Jesus is divisive. He divides people into two groups. Those who believe in Him and those who do not believe in Him. Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father. And then he goes on to talk about the division that he's bringing. So allegiance to Jesus will inevitably bring divisions. So therefore, brothers, if your idea of church is that it's a place where everyone must come and everyone must be accepted the way he or she is, never being confronted by the Word of God, where everyone must come and be happy, you misunderstood the gospel because you misunderstood the head of the church. So if the head of the church divides people, then his body, consequently, will bring a division. And Peter wants Christians to understand that this division that they're experiencing in Asia Minor is actually part of belonging to the stumbling block, Jesus Christ. So we see that, but you, there is a contrast here. Now look at the word you, verse 9. But you, who is the you here? But you, that's important. Who is Peter talking to? So let's go to chapter 1. That's crucial to understand the nature of the church if we understand to whom Peter is addressing here. So look how he says. Let's go to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So these people, they have been elected, they have they're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus. They expect to obey the Lord Jesus and for sprinkling with His blood. 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Look at the you here. Blessed be the God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has called us, and now Peter puts himself with them, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. For whom? For you. For you. That's the you he's addressing here. Now, let's go to verse 17. It becomes even clearer here who the you is referring to. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So these people have been ransomed, redeemed. No, it's perishable things as silver or gold, but it's the precious blood of Christ. And then he goes on, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified, purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And then you, here in the imperative, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable soul. Who is the you? Christians. Believers. People who are born again. That's whom Peter is addressing. When he says, but you. People who have been saved, regenerated, born again, redeemed, obedient to Jesus. And these are Jews and Gentiles. Chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and obedient to Jesus. That's crucial to understand. Because now Peter is going to give the true identity of these people. Jews and Gentiles. Saved. That's the community he's talking to you. Why am I saying that? Because we have brothers in Christ, faithful brothers in Christ, we will believe that the church is composed of a mixture of people. That's why they will baptize infants. That's crucial. The you here are people who are born again, ransomed, redeemed. It's not a mixed community. He's talking about two people who are saved. That's the church. And then he starts giving all the titles that we read in Exodus 19. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So Peter starts encouraging these Christians who are suffering by, by addressing who they are in Christ Jesus. And it's fantastic. It's amazing that he's using all those titles that were used for Israel under the Old Covenant. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 1. The diaspora, dispersion, the elect in the dispersion, diaspora. That, that word was used for Orthodox Jewish people living outside Palestine. And Peter is addressing Christians now. You are the true diaspora. And then he goes on, he says that they are the chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of God's own possession. And the question is, why is Peter using the titles of national Israel under the Old Covenant to churches in Asia Minor? Is Peter going cuckoo here? Is Peter going crazy? Is he misunderstanding the text? Is he just a wild allegorizer? He understands what we talk about last Lord's Day. The progression in the covenants. The fulfillment in Christ Jesus. 
He's not losing his mind. He understands that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Covenant. So Jesus is Israel filled full. He knows that Jesus is the new and true Israel. Therefore, all those who are in Jesus, doesn't matter if they're Jew or Gentile, that is the church, is now the new Israel of God. And that's why Peter can address the churches that are in Gentile territories formed by Gentile church members with titles of honor and dignity that were used for old Israel. That's amazing. Peter wants the churches in Asia Minor to know that they have a history, they have a heritage, a legacy, a beautiful pedigree. It's not an accident. You're not an accident. You're not a parenthesis in history. God loves you. He's watching over you. You are His most precious possession. But we are suffering. That's exactly why. He loves you. Just like the Son. So, let's unfold here what Peter is saying. But you, verse 9, but you are, back, you are a chosen race. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race. Here's the great contrast. The two groups. One was destined. Look at verse 8. As they were destined to reject Jesus. And now there's this new group here. But you are a chosen people. Look at verse 8. And then compared to verse 9. They were destined. You see God's sovereignty. They were destined to do that. But you have a different destiny. You have a very different destiny. And He calls them the chosen race. And that's a title derived from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And here's the reason. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. Actually, we were just one man with one woman. And that woman was barren. Remember Abraham? But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Also, Isaiah 43, You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. And it talks once again about my chosen people, Israel. So Peter is boldly claiming the privileged status on behalf of the Christian church that was once given to Old Israel, the chosen people, the chosen race. Now, Peter is applying to Christians. And you see in your text, the words chosen, ek, out, lactos, to call, to choose. That's a very profound definition. I look at the Hebrew, the Greek lexicon. And chosen means that which has been chosen. Very profound, no? implies that God is the one actively choosing and predestining His people. And notice that Peter here is not saying, you are a chosen person. It's plural. You are a chosen race. Yes, I know the predestination, election, first of all, has to be a personal aspect. There is no thing, such thing as, well, God is talking about the election of the nation. But how is a nation formed? By individuals. Okay? So, a lot of times people we will argue that election or predestination is a corporate thing. Amen. But how is that corporate thing formed? By individuals. So individuals have to be elected. 
Because you hear a lot of brothers and sisters say, yeah, I believe in in, the election of the church. Meaning, there is no individual election. That makes no sense. Because how can you have a group of people without individuals? But it's important to understand that God did not choose and predestine individuals to remain living individualistic lifestyles, but to be part of a new race, a nation. So we can never separate election from the personal election, can never divorce from the corporate election. And he says you are a chosen race. The word for race, the Greek word genos, the ESV says race, the NASB also, the NIV says people, the King James says generation, and they're all very similar in meaning. Uh, was used to a relatively large group of persons regarded as being biologically related. That's how the word was used. And first of all, Peter is saying that we are chosen because of Jesus, who is the chosen one. And look in chapter 1, verse 20. And he was chosen before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 2 of Chapter uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by man in the sight of God, chosen and precious. First of all, Jesus is the chosen one, the true chosen one, God. And He says, you are a chosen race. You think about race, a large group of people regarded as being biologically related, and that's what Peter is developing throughout his letter, that we were birthed This new race was birthed by God Himself. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Okay? How is that chosen race? How how are we part of that? God has given us a new birth. Verse 23, chapter 1. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable, to the living by the Word of God. So... We are God's chosen race, created, birthed by God Himself. That's what Peter is saying. But you are the chosen race. So much talk about racism nowadays. White lives matter, black lives matter. You see in the church, the most ridiculous thing is you have racist people. Racist people in the church are ignorant people, honestly. We are one race in Jesus Christ. There are only two races. Fallen race in Adam, and the saved race, the new race in Jesus Christ. There can be no such thing as racism in the church. We are the church formed by people, black, white, yellow, red. One race, one race, one chosen race. Graciously, graciously chosen by God Himself. The church as the chosen race must be marked by humility and joy in the fact that we have been chosen. Every single member is precious because every single member was chosen by the sovereign God. And we see a lot of people debating election and predestination. Honestly, in the Bible, election and predestination are not things to be debated, but to be cherished and praised. God must be worshipped. The God who doesn't need anything, the triune God who is self-sufficient, self-existing, who doesn't need anybody, Yet, in His mercy and His grace, He chooses people unto Himself. Let me ask you, do you think there was anything in you that was so beautiful, so attractive, that God could not resist but have to elect you? Honestly. Do you think there was something so lovely in you 
that was irresistible. God, when He looked upon me, I was so beautiful, so wonderful. That was irresistible. God had to choose me. Nothing. That's what the Lord says in Deuteronomy 7. There was nothing new lovely about you. I chose to put my love on you. It's all His grace and His mercy. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. That's all we read earlier. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's all about His mercy. That's what election is all about. God's mercy. We don't deserve anything. We deserve hell. Every single person is born under God's wrath. Ephesians chapter 2. And God in His mercy chose some people to be saved. And instead of arrogance and, and pride and boasting, there must be humility and joy and thankfulness. A church that understands that they are the chosen race is marked by gratitude. Is a church of thankful people. Their prayers, their words overflow with thankfulness. A church that understands that they are the chosen race. God in His sovereign grace chose us. A church that understands that is marked by gratitude, by thankfulness. Their songs are songs of thankfulness. Their prayers, when they pray, are prayers of thankfulness, gratitude. You don't see people grumbling, complaining. They're thanking the Lord. That's a church that's marked by the understanding that they are the chosen race. Not only is marked by gratitude, but it's marked by passionate and affectionate worship. There is no such thing as frozen chosen. In churches that understand election, there is a fiery zeal to praise the Lord in their lives. You can see the love, the passion towards the Lord who was gracious and merciful towards them. There is vitality in all meetings, in the singing, in the praying, in the fellowship. And it doesn't matter the style of the music. Not only is marked by passionate and affectionate worship, but a church that understands that they are the chosen race, is marked by generosity. Every person overwhelmed by God's grace is generous. I have never met a person who was overwhelmed by God's grace and was stingy. Stingy people are selfish people. Stingy people, tight-fisted people, they don't understand grace. People who understand God's grace and mercy are generous. You can read Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. It doesn't matter the size of the church or the financial condition of its members. There will be a generous giving in that place. Just look at our church. When I tell people what we do with our money, and people ask, how many members do you have in your church? I'm not kidding. You can see their jaws dropping. Why? Because it's a church that understands God's grace. It's all His grace. Freely He gives. Freely we give. Not only that, but a church that understands that they are the chosen race is marked by service. They are busy serving other people. They don't waste their time complaining, murmuring, gossiping about things in the church because they are busy serving other Christians. You go to a place where you have a lot of gossip, murmuring, be sure those people don't understand God's grace. They can call themselves reformed, they can call themselves whatever they want, but they don't understand God's grace. So being determines doing. Who we are, a chosen race, determines how we live, what we should be doing. Not only that, but Peter also says that we are a royal. Look at verse 9. But you are a royal priesthood. Once again, Peter is using a title of dignity from Israel under the Old Covenant and applying to the Christians under the New Covenant. 
The church is God's royal priesthood. The word royal, regal, speaks of a king and a kingdom. And the king that Peter is referring here is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah. The anointed one. The anointed king. And because the church is in Jesus, the king, we are a royal, a regal institution. And look at the members of this regal institution, this kingdom. It's a kingdom of priests. The members of the church are priests of Jesus. So when you read here in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a royal priesthood. You need to understand that he's talking. You are the priests of the King Jesus. You belong to Him. We who once were priests of the kingdom of darkness are now priests in the kingdom of God. And you think about the priests. What are their tasks? What did they have to do? They had the great privilege of standing between God and man. They had the great privilege of spreading the Torah. You read the Old Testament and you read how the prophets interpret the apostasy of Israel and they blame the priests for not teaching the law. The land is destroyed because of its lack of knowledge. And then Hosea goes on to say that's the priests' fault because they should be the ones passing on the law of the Lord to other people. The members of the church are people who are always before God. The priests were people who served the Lord. They're deeply connected to worship and service. So the church must be marked by members who are constantly worshiping and serving the King Jesus. That's what it is to be a royal priesthood. Now let me remind you that the priesthood also implied in evangelism. That's very interesting. Because Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. And that implied to proclaim the goodness of the Lord to other people. Other people were to look at them and see, wow, that's a different nation. They all serve the Lord. Romans 15, verse 15 through 16, Paul says, But on, the, on, the, on some points I have written to you very boldly by the way of a reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And then he says, In the priestly service of the gospel of God. Peter, uh, Paul connects this priesthood given to us with evangelism. So there is worship, there is service, and this worship and service reflects to others around. And they see that, whoa, that's beautiful. So behold the dignity, the value of the church. The church is the royal priesthood of God. A group of people who serve the living God. What a beautiful pedigree, no? The priests of Jesus. A royal priesthood. That's how the Lord sees His church. A royal priesthood. A chosen race. And as you think about the priests, everything the priests should resemble the holiness of God, their lifestyle, whom they married, how they lived, how they dressed. Everything should be a reflection of the God they serve. And then Peter says, not only that, but a holy nation. But you are a holy nation. Nation. Once again, Peter is drawing from the Old Testament. The word ethnos, nation, ethnos, was used for a large group of people based on various cultural or physical or geographical ties. You think about a nation. A nation speaks of a vast number of people who are tied together by, the, by their common descent. The word nation comes from the Latin word nasi and the later nati. We have natal. What is a prenatal? So, connect to birth. 
So nation are people who have a common birth place. That's the idea behind. That's what Peter is saying here. But you are a holy nation. The church is a group of people who share their same heavenly and spiritual birth. A birth that sets them apart to God. And I think it's fascinating the, the, the terminology of a nation. Because you think about a nation. You have all these people. They have one major thing in common. Their citizenship. Right? That's what holds a nation together. They have the same citizenship. They belong to that nation. But within a nation, you have an amazing, amazing number of people who are very different from each other. So you have diversity in a nation. Not everybody looks the same in a nation. You may say, oh, but the Japanese culture or the Asian culture, they look very similar. No, but they're all very different. They have different dialects. And the same with the church. You have all these people who are so different. I look at John and we're very different, John. <laughs> but you see, we love each other and we share the greatest thing in common, the heavenly birth. There are some people They'd say, I would, never I would never choose that person to be my friend. You see, it's not up to you, it's up to the Lord. Just like with siblings, right? There are people who never choose to be your sibling, honestly, or your neighbor. You see, that, that's the picture that the Lord... He, he wants this diversity. It's beautiful. All these people are very different. And yet, they share one major thing in common that draws them together, that binds them together, that ties them together like no other tie. And I'm closer to you guys than to my natural family. My friendship with you, my brotherhood with you, some of the ladies here are closer to me than my mom. Why? Because of this thing that binds us together. This heavenly birth. This new heart that loves the same Lord. A holy nation. It's interesting. The word holy describes that this nation is for God. The word holy brings the concept of being separate to the Lord, set apart to the Lord. The church is God's nation. You think about the holy nation, holy, that's the Lord. So this nation belongs to the Lord, it's for the Lord. The church is the only true nation under God. As someone said, America's boast is the church's reality. The only nation under God, or better for God. The United States of America is not a holy nation. Physical Israel is no longer a holy nation. And even the family, God does not call a holy nation. The church, and the church alone, bears the distinctive of being a holy nation. Isn't that amazing? The dignity, the status that the Lord places upon the church, His people. Family is very important. Family is crucial as one of the building blocks of society. But even family... The institution of family does not bear the dignity that the church bears. And what scares me is sometimes you have all this conference about family and praise the Lord, but very little is spoken about the church and the importance of church membership and the importance of submitting to local churches and accountability in local churches. The fact that the church is a holy nation implies that the church exists for God. To be holy is to be set apart to God. So all that the church does must be done grounded in this identity as belonging to God. So, a holy nation. That's what Peter is saying. We belong to God. The church does not exist for you. I'm sorry about that, but it's not for you. It's not for you. The church is not for you. 
It's not for you to feel happy, to feel comfortable. It's not for you to come and, and just, you know, that was really uplifting. Oh, that was not uplifting, so I'm leaving this place. The church is not for you. The church exists for God. So if people are going to evaluate, and they should evaluate a church, if we're going to evaluate our church, that's how it must be. That's how it must be done. Is the music set apart to Him? Are the songs that we sing for God? Right? That's a holy nation. Are the hymns they're singing for God or for people to feel good about themselves? Is the preaching set apart to Him? Is the preaching here in this church for God? Are the programs centered on Jesus? Oh, that's the nature of the church. A holy nation. A holy nation. Do you see all these titles that, that Peter is bringing and just applying to the church? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what caused the church to examine those who want to be members in the church. That's very crucial, brothers and sisters. As we are talking about the nature of the church, that's crucial. Why do we gather the members and ask them about people who are interested in becoming members in this church? Because we need to see if their lives match what the Bible describes as the lives of those who belong to the church. The church is a community of people saved by God. We saw that in the beginning. And then finally, Peter says, and that's glorious, but you are a people for His own possession. Now it's very clear to whom the church belongs. It's interesting, the word possession, His own possession. That which is acquired, presumably with considerable effort. Ownership by way of acquisition. It speaks of ownership. Someone who acquired that, bought that thing and now belongs to him. And that's what Peter is saying. That's what the rest of the Bible says. The church belongs to God. That's how we started. The value of something is connected to its owner. First Peter 1 through chapter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. You are bought. Remember the word ransom to redeem, to buy someone from the slavery. You are bought by the, with the blood of Christ. Paul says, Acts 20, 28, that God shed His own blood for His church. And then in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, we have the, those heavenly creatures singing a new song. And what they sing is about Jesus and how He bought a people for God with His own blood. Well, the church belongs to God. It's His most treasured and most valuable possession. No other institution receives this title. Think about that. What other institution receives these titles here? So, let me tell, tell you lovingly that if you are not in Christ, if you are not in Christ, you are not God's most treasured possession. And God is giving you the opportunity today to hear His Word and repent and turn to Christ and embrace Christ. But you, but you are, those who are in Jesus, His own possession. The value and dignity of the church is connected to the one to whom she belongs. Let me ask you, is the church a treasure possession for you? Is the church of Christ a treasure possession in your life? How do you show that? How do you show that? And then verse 9, and you finish here. Now comes the purpose. This is being determines doing. Once you find out who we are, now we know what we are supposed to be doing. That's the end of verse 9. That you, here's the reason, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
Once we understand who we are, then we can understand what we are supposed to be doing. So Peter gives the identity of the church, and now he gives the mission of the church. And what is the church's mission? In light of its identity and nature, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And Peter is once again quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah 43, verses 19 through 21. And it's an interesting passage because Isaiah is talking about a new exodus that the Lord is bringing. And once the Lord brings this new exodus, this greater exodus, the people will proclaim the mighty works of the Lord. When you see Peter saying, to proclaim the excellencies of Him, he's going back to Isaiah and say, we, our mission now is to proclaim the excellencies equals the mighty work of the Lord in saving us. That's what Peter is saying. And then you read the Old Testament background for all these praises. It's the congregation together. People worshiping in public together. When they gather to worship, that's when they proclaim the excellencies of Him who called them out of darkness. So the church as a nation, as a chosen race, as a holy priesthood, is developed now to offer sacrifice of praise and adoration. And what is the content of worship? Look at verse 9. What is the content of the declaration there? That you might proclaim the excellencies of Him. That's the content of worship. It's always the Lord. Always the Lord. Who we are determines what we do. We don't gather here to talk about the newest movies, the newest social developments, how to empower each other with self-confidence, but to declare the excellencies of Him, the mighty works of the Lord in redeeming us. That's the nature of worship. That's the content of worship. That's how we must always measure the integrity of a church. How do you measure the worship service of a church? Is that by the number of people that attended? Wow, that was an awesome worship service. We had 300 people. Wow, that was an awesome worship service. I had goosebumps. You always measure, you always measure the integrity and faithfulness of any worship service by looking at and say, were they declaring the excellencies of Him who called them out of darkness into His marvelous light? And as we do that, there is this aspect of evangelism. First of all, it's we, as a church, worshiping in everything that we do, proclaiming His excellencies, and other people will see and behold it. Say, that's a different kind of people. See, that's what's so amazing. It no longer has mattered the location. You see, in the Old Testament, it mattered. It had to be in Jerusalem, in Palestine. Now it's no longer like that. Anywhere that the church gathers, we need to resemble these things. So even... Inside this gymnasium, as soon as people walk through those doors, they must see a difference, a change. Well, that, that's a different group of people right here. They're different. It doesn't matter the location, but how we live, how we understand who we are in Christ Jesus. So, my prayer is that we would look at First Peter chapter 2 and behold the dignity and the value that the Lord places upon His church. And that by looking at that, we would grow into admiration and love and zeal and, and just this fervency towards the church that we have not been seeing around here. Not this church, but say in the American culture in general. So many people, they declare to be Christians, but they 
don't have anything to do with the church. As we saw, in the end of the day, your apathy is not towards the church, but towards the owner of the church, Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank You. We thank You for this wonderful morning. Thank for Your Word. Your Word is true and set us free and change us. Lord, I pray that You'd change us, our view of Your people. Help us to see the dignity, the value, the worth of the church. Help us to love the church as You love the church. To love Your people. So help us, Lord. We beg Your mercy and Your grace. Thank You. Thank You for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's marvelous light. Thank You for placing these titles of honor on undeserving people like us. We don't deserve anything, Lord. We deserve hell. Your wrath upon us. That's all we deserve because of our sins. And yet, You are so gracious. They would call us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and above all, Your own treasure possession. We thank You, Lord. That's humbling. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.